Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the 1 106 to the second photography podcast. Today's episode is going to be called Telling Stories with Photography and I'm joined today by Gavin Parsons. So Gavin, would you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a bit about you? Hello, I'm Gavin Parsons, as you said. Uh, I'm a photographer and videographer these days. I call myself a visual content creator because it sounds posher and is easier to say. And I um, am basically a visual storyteller and photograph uh, anything that people pay me to and a lot of stuff that people don't pay me to uh, in just a way to tell visual stories to, to get messages across. Thank you, Gavin. Now, why is it important that images tell a story? There's a lot of stories to be told that people don't really realise what's what's going on and they can see one picture and think, oh, that's terrible. Or they can see a lot of images of uh, all sorts of different things and, and not really gain any sort of background knowledge to, to a subject. And it's better if a whole story can be told visually that people can get a full idea of, of what's going on and then maybe try and do something about it themselves. In the age of people flicking through screens, does a pic- is it the case that a picture says a thousand words? It used to be. Now a thousand pictures can say one word. In the days of film and, uh, and magazine and print, one picture could actually tell a thousand words. But in today's society where they just flick through social media platforms like Instagram... You need more than just one picture to, to actually tell your story because one picture might stay in front of their face for or fr- stay in front of their eyes for just a millisecond. And if that's gone, then they won't ever see and know what the story was about. I mean, that, that's really interesting because I was about to ask you, so what is your strategy for getting that message across in today's culture? But it sounds like your strategy really is to have more than one image in a set. It is. It, my strategy really is to be able to convey a whole story in a series of, of images. Now, each one of those images has to be powerful enough to make people stop and look. And there's been some quite good studies. I did a, a marketing course earlier in the year, and the attention span for people has dropped from uh, something like 11 seconds down to nine seconds within a decade. So you have to get your image to be visually stimulating enough to stop people long enough to get them to understand. And there's going to be people that aren't going to bother looking at images for, for very long at all. They're so used to just flicking with their thumb that anything longer than a couple of seconds and they're gone. So you've got to have a story planned out from the very start to the very end that when they start flicking, they'll actually get and absorb that story all the way through. I mean, as a photographer, I find telling a story with an image to be the the most difficult thing. It's the most difficult thing to describe to someone how to do. It's the most difficult thing to achieve. It's the most difficult thing to get your subject to do. Do you have any tips on including some sort of narrative or some sort of story within an image? I think what you have to do is, as a photographer, you've got to understand the whole story to start with. Um, I'll use one of my most sort of important and significant stories, which was The Last Dancing Bears of India. Uh, You might have seen that on my website. The story is really quite difficult to portray because it involves both animal elements and human elements and huge amounts of cruelty, but also once the bears are rescued, then uh, huge amounts of compassion for the actual animals. So... You have to understand all of that story to be able to find 
if you're dealing with one image, you've got to find an image that actually tells that story of how humans have helped re-abused animals get better. And probably the most significant one for me is when the vets are looking at the uh, the eyes and the teeth of the animal. The animal's out cold, uh, and so you've got this head of this enormous bear lying on a table in hideous condition, so they can see how cruelly the animal has been affected. And a vet is looking at the animal really, really closely, really intensely. And that one picture, I think, probably portrays the whole story. Just because I understood the whole the story from the start to the finish meant that I could actually decide that that was the one thing that would actually portray the whole thing in one image. But again, I've got a whole range of images from the start to the end of that story that, that would actually probably portray it a lot better. When you go out on that type of assignment, and I, I guess you're you're there for maybe a few days, may, maybe a week, you're going to gather a lot of images. How do you put your best ones forward? Is it the best photographically or is it the ones that tell the story? I come from the old days of film, so I don't rattle off millions and millions of images on even a week's story. I won't just go around snapping at everything and then have to go back and look at all the images to to work out which ones are the best ones. I actually work out which ones are going to be the best ones in my head first before I actually take them. So I've actually got an, an idea in my head of what I want the image to say. Then I've got an idea in my head of what images are possible. And then I actually go about taking the images. So I'd, probably in a day, I won't take more than depending on what's going on, obviously, but I won't take more than a dozen to maybe 20 shots in a day. And then that obviously makes reviewing a bit easier, I'm guessing. In a way, I've done the reviewing in my head before I've even taken the pictures. I won't, If there's a, a, a bear in the sanctuary just stood there, I won't take 100 pictures of it because I know that it's not actually going to say anything for the story that I'm trying to get across. What I would rather do is wait until I know that there's a bear going in to have some surgery done and that's where I would take all the images. So out in the field, are you sort of met with hostility? Or how do people treat you when you're there taking pictures of things that maybe are a bit sensitive? Or maybe they don't want you to take a picture of, or maybe they don't want to feature in that. How do you deal with that, Gavin? It depends on the actual story and who I'm working for denotes the sort of level of hostility that I get. If I'm doing work for a sort of an animal rescue charity, the stories normally are about the animals being either brought into a sanctuary or, or, or rescued. So if they're being brought into a sanctuary, then that's quite a calm environment. So you don't get get a lot of awful lot of hostility. If you're actually out in the field where there's people confiscating animals, or uh, a, a better analogy or a better story would be when I was working for Greenpeace, uh, we were working on um, marine reserves in the Mediterranean. A lot of that involved sort of photographing Greenpeace activists uh, against fishermen, and the fishermen aren't the most of friendliest of people when they're having their livelihood attacked. So they tend to uh, to get a bit annoyed. It's a it's a tricky one to work out which stories would be the most dangerous, but basically I tend to feel quite safe behind a camera, although that often has got me uh, bruises on my head as things have been shoved at me. That that sounds that sounds absolutely lovely. And it's in, <laughs> it's interesting you said the most dangerous. Can you talk about what was the most dangerous then? It's different for different people. Some people would think swimming with sharks is dangerous, but I've done that quite a lot of times and, and view it as quite a, uh, an ordinary thing these days but I've got a bit of a sluggish survival gene I think because I always tend to be running towards danger when everybody else is running away from it. It's a, it's a tricky one to, to try and pin down. I sort of weigh up the risks as I'm getting in into 
deep water. There, I do have my limits, and and quite often the most dangerous one was when we I was working for Greenpeace, and we went to take on some. Well, we didn't actually go on to take on anybody. We were monitoring uh, bluefin tuna fishermen in Turkey. Word went round the fishing community that we were there to attack them. They, they had about sixty vessels in one area, and we were just supposed to be there monitoring with one. We had a helicopter and. They fired flares at the helicopter that I was in, and then they decided to crowd our boat and pelt us with large lead weights that they use as line sinkers. So I was out on deck photographing these fishermen hurling these great big lead weights at us that smashed up the helicopter and peppered the deck and the and the windows with basically fist-sized bits of lead. Uh, and after I sort of nearly got hit by a couple of those, then I decided that, that enough was enough, and I retreated into the safety of the hold. So, I mean, you're there documenting things but it seems like you also document what happens when you go to document things if, if that makes sense again it, it varies depending on on who you're working for and what they're actually trying to achieve with things like the greenpeace work they they were trying to get a reaction out of people to highlight issues that they were working on and it was the reaction that made the news so if they they did a protest it was the action that made the news that was what i was documenting whereas if it's something like something like the rescuing of bears it's the actual story of the bears that the thing that i'm documenting so there's not that much danger in in that sort of story so let let's talk a bit about gear gavin I, and i know no job is the same and gear depends on where you're going and what you're doing but i'd be interested to know generally what f- photographic gear you bring with you and what non-photographic gear you bring with you yeah as you say it's it's different for different jobs the photographic gear i tend to take is i'll always take at least two bodies and i use nikon gear uh, and that's changed i my first digital camera was the nikon d2x if nikon had made no other digital cameras i would have been happy because that was a, a brilliant body you could do anything to that thing and it would not break and it would just keep going and going and going the newer bodies as well that i uh, i've used are, are just as good but that that tended to be my favourite one. Lenses, I, I'm a bit of a stickler, going back to my old days, really, of being a, a prime lens person. And I'll try and get most of my work done on prime lenses. Although when you're dealing with uh, fast-paced news stories, then the zooms tend to, to come out. And I'll use... I don't really go particularly to telephoto. I'm more of a, a wide angle and, and sort of getting into the into the action. Tend to use, when it comes to zooms, I've got a... A 24 to 85 nothing particularly fancy only because there's a, a risk of of everything getting damaged when uh, when you're in quite sort of heated exchanges with people so i don't tend to go for the the top quality stuff just knowing that at some point someone will lob the camera in the sea or something and uh and i would have lost thousands of pounds worth of lenses i don't tend to do that i tend to go for the the lower end and and use the uh the cheaper stuff to as a bit more disposable fair enough and so talking of damage what has got damaged before then and could you just sort of tell us how it got damaged as well i had a a, a d2x saying that they never went wrong i did have a d2x go down um due to water damage but that was because i was on a a small rigid inflatable boat and we were um going after some sane net fishermen which uh they would they basically scoop tuna up out the sea when they're breeding which isn't a nice thing to do to uh to fish stocks but that's what they do greenpeace decided to to go in and disrupt this behavior and the fishermen didn't particularly like that so they were zooming around in their boats and i got a complete drenching and uh, and the camera was totaled. So that was probably the most memorable one. I'm an underwater photographer as well, and I've had cameras flood 
in underwater housing, so you lo completely lose those. It tends to be when seawater and cameras meet is uh, is where I lose gear. I, I completely understand the not getting the top stuff. I, I wonder whether you ever have anything that's weather sealed, but I suppose you need a combination of a body and a lens that are weather sealed. Yeah, the bodies I tend to go for are always weather sealed, which is why I like the Nikon gear. The, um, the D2X was one of the first bodies that was water sealed or weather sealed and the every every sort of single body i've used since then has, has always had some sort of weather sealing but as you say if you get water on a lens the the water can go into the lens and and weather sealing only only protects you a certain amount if if you get caught in a rain shower you'll be fine if you get drenched by a boat splashing you with a copious amount of water then that tends to make its way past the uh, the weather ceiling and have you ever been able to save equipment and what i mean by that is it's got drenched and it's got soaked have you ever been able to bring it back to life yes not necessarily electronics if it's a, if a camera's got too wet then chances are it needs to go to repairers i have saved now this was back in film days i saved a what did i have it was a f90 and this was when i was un, an underwater photographer the f90 was involved in a flood in the in the camera housing and the only thing i'd really lost was the battery which i can change a battery no problem the uh the rest of the body was absolutely fine once i'd washed it off and dried it out basically did open heart surgery on it and dried off everything i could find that was wet that went on for another good couple of years after that i've saved some lenses that way as well by stripping them down and getting them into silica gel or in some some of the more extreme cases getting them into bags of dry rice that sort of thing just to suckle any moisture out and i've saved a few things that way i mean it, it almost sounds like in some ways due to as you said you don't take excessive shots of everything and you might take 40 in a day it almost sounds like maybe maybe film's the way to go because to me that seems a film camera will have less electronics will have one single battery might be more robust if it does get soaked. Well, I do miss the days of film, but then of course you don't you don't get your images instantly. If you've got uh, a story that's ongoing, you can download images as you go. Whereas in the days of film, you had to go and get them processed, and the chances of losing a film between the time you took the shot and the time it gets processed and back to you was far greater. I did a trip to Sudan once and took twenty rolls of film, took them to the processors, and three rolls came back because their machine jammed and basically cooked 17 rolls of film. Oh dear, that's that's all I can say to that. Can you tell me about how you keep things well backed up in the field, in the middle of the ocean, etc.? What sort of process do you have in place, if any? Well, I always carry a laptop with me, uh, which is the first port of call for, for the images. As I say, I don't take that many, so I don't need huge amounts of of storage with me but i always take a couple of portable hard drives mainly sort of 80 gigabyte type things that um, go into the usb or the thunderbolt port and i just have a couple of those that so i get three backups per uh, per trip really yeah that that sounds like a good number and a practical number as well we've talked about your photographic equipment what other equipment do you bring that's not photographic good pair of boots normally uh, i tend to buy army surplus boots which uh, are a lot better than, than the outdoor wear type footwear that you can get i always wear boots no matter where i am even when i go on holiday i if i go on holiday to places like egypt i'll wear boots whereas everybody else will be wearing flip-flops People look at me weirdly, but I don't know. Something about injuring your feet is just not in my vocabulary. I can't. Boots is is one thing. A good hat, because I haven't got much hair these days. Sunglasses as well. A lot of sunscreen. Yes, I can imagine being on the ocean. 
or in Egypt, you might need that. Your images have contributed towards making a difference, I'm guessing, in, in some way or another, and they've changed people's opinions. How can the average person do that or get their foot into that without putting their lives in danger, without confronting fishermen? What would your tips be for the average person? There's lots and lots of causes that are being fought these days. And, I mean, I the heyday of, of my work really was before a lot of the causes actually got into the mainstream. So at the moment, the, there's a big thing about single-use plastic. And I was working on single-use plastic 10 years ago before anybody really even heard that there was a problem with it. Uh, so there's lots of organisations around doing lots of good work on lots of different things that are maybe haven't even been thought of. But if you come across it in your everyday life, chances are it will be a problem for someone and someone will be trying to do something about it. Key thing really is to find those people that are trying to do something about it and working with them. I had the very fortunate or unfortunate, depending on who you are. If it's me, it's fortunate. If you're my mother, it's unfortunate. Um, position to meet um, a guy that's basically changed my entire life and, and mapped my entire life, uh, who works for an organisation called International Animal Rescue these days. Uh, and it's him that I've done a lot of my work with and for. Uh, and... It's meeting those sorts of people. It's finding those connections that that people that have access to um, to the stories that uh, that you can exploit. So your underwater photography, which I, I've seen some on your website actually, and I I used to do a bit of scuba diving. Did you become a scuba diver to access underwater photography, or did were you already a scuba diver and you sort of took your camera along? I'm one of the few people I think that actually went to college to do photography I, I studied photography at, at college and that was way before I got into diving I then my first job in photography was actually a, a writer I was a writer on practical photography magazine and then through journalism got into got into having enough money to, to pursue some of my other passions which were one of which was being underwater so I learned to dive when I was on practical photography and thought, well, I could take some pictures of this underwater stuff and then realised just how difficult and um, expensive it was. But I persevered and then ended up becoming one of the the best known underwater photographers in, in the UK uh, and just because there wasn't that many of them and became the editor of a, a scuba diving magazine, which sort of propelled me to do more underwater photography. So it, it the photography came first, but quite soon afterwards, the, the, the diving stuff appeared. And you've talked about single-use plastic. Now, I'm guessing one of the things that might be quite prevalent in sort of causes, campaigns, and public awareness things is people look at something and they think that's terrible. Within a week, within a day, within a month, for example, they haven't changed behaviour because of the convenience factor. How often do people need reminding of things? Pretty much these days, pretty much it's every single day. But Sky have taken up the whole single-use plastic thing, which is which is really good, and they bang on about it all the time, which is the only real way that, that people... When it comes to things like single-use plastic that affect people every single day, but it's it's more of a convenience thing that they use the bad thing than anything else then you have to really keep on and on and on 
which actually takes up uh, a huge amount of imagery. So it's a good thing for photographers like me, photographers that, that take pictures for, for causes, because there's always, firstly, there's always another cause around the corner. And secondly, those causes need images constantly to get their message across, to get people to change their attitudes to, to different things. Do you mind if I ask you about earning a living for causes? Is it a case that a charity and a cause will pay a photographer or because they're a charity and they're a good cause they sort of expect maybe things are done for them on a volunteer basis back before the financial crash in 2008 there was money around to pay photographers to to highlight bigger bigger organizations organizations ngos and larger charities would pay photographers to go and uh, get the imagery that they needed since then, with the contraction of media outlets for them to send pictures to, uh, the amount of money around for to pay for photographers has also diminished. And I tend to only, these days, causes that I tend to, to shoot for most, it's personal work for that organisation. Now, how can someone get into doing personal work for an organisation? Is it just a case of making contacts and someone will say, oh, yes, thank you very much? Or is there more of an editorial slant on it? The easiest way to do it is to find an organisation and, and try and find a fairly small organisation that's local because these stories tend to take a huge amount of time. And if, if you've got other jobs to do and you're uh, you've got a family maybe or a mortgage to pay and, and you have to work then it's easier to find an organization that's local to you and work for them than run off and, and find someone in Belize or something and schlep over there to try and get as many stories as you can it's not going to work if you've only got a week uh, so the best thing to do is to find a local organization that's doing some good work in your local area that you can then really concentrate on and once you find a small organization do your best work for them. Even though you're working for free, do your best work for them to then try and get noticed. And then you've got the opportunity to have two people promoting your work. So you'll be promoting your work because it's promoting them and they'll be promoting your work because it's promoting them. So you've got a double whammy there and then you step up to a slightly larger organisation, do your best work for them slightly larger and then you work your way up the ladder what sort of tips would you give people who wanted to get into telling a story and working for a cause in in how they take their photographs before you actually take any pictures whatsoever is make sure you understand the whole story because it's not necessarily for example a lot of the wildlife stories i've worked on aren't just wildlife stories there's always a human element to pretty much every every cause story that there is there'll be a human element and people like to read about and see in images about people so i try and include people in a lot more of my images than than you may expect because people are just nosy and or or interested in in what other people do so it's understanding the whole story and also try and include a human element in that story should the photographer also be writing about it as well if they're out in the field documenting stuff with pictures and they know the story, it almost feels like they should be doing the journalistic part as well and reporting on it with words. What do you think about that? Well, I do that quite a lot as well. Go back to, uh, to when I started working in the industry. My first job was as a technical writer on Practical Photography magazine. Then I went on to do be the editor of 
uh, a magazine called Sport Diver, which was a diving magazine. So I've always, from the very earliest days of my career, worked in both pictures and words. And it's finding finding a photographer that can actually write really well is it's quite difficult to find someone like that. So it's quite a skill to actually to being a good wordsmith and being a good visual communicator. If you can teach yourself how to write really engaging, interesting copy, as well as take really engaging and interesting pictures, then you're going to be more in demand than someone that's that's either just a good picture taker or someone that's just a good writer. Yes, and and now more journalists are taking pictures and video and small features with their smartphones as well. So it's working both ways. It is, but one of the things that's quite difficult to differentiate, a news journalist with a, a smartphone can take news pictures because they they tend to be just sort of grab shots. But when you're trying to be a visual storyteller, that's a lot more difficult. It's it's more of a it's more of an artistic thing than than just a, a news gathering thing. You talked earlier about you're also a videographer. I'm guessing the trend has been maybe there's been more of a growth in videography in the past couple of years. How how does videography factor into this now? Visual media has, has moved more to the internet and with the with faster broadband speeds and everything, people expect to see moving images as, as much as they expect to see still images. So it's always good to have a, a bit of video craft in your repertoire as well as stills just because that's what people are going to to see and also what clients will ask for i started in videography i then went to photography and and now i'm doing podcasting because i i learn all the audio aspects and i've got those three skills and and i use them quite regularly well audio is a dark art in my in my view it's something that people always get wrong and i've got it wrong many times in that uh, you you get some really stunning images moving images not just still images people just uh, switch off because the audio is so bad doesn't matter how good the pictures are if you haven't got the audio right people aren't aren't going to stay and watch it people have the, the the lowest threshold people have is for audio hence why i got good at it i remember someone said i i made something once and someone said to me i couldn't hear it and and that that really frustrated me so i made sure after that you could hear it the dialogue was clear, etc. And I've become good at focusing on audio because I know that that is the weakest part. And it's the easiest part to get wrong. I think I, I did something once and a busker turned up outside and completely ruined the audio and he wouldn't go away. I was saying, I, I explained to him, I'm trying to record something and you're ruining it. And he, he just wouldn't go away. And yeah, that, that, you uh... know, that was the shoot over, basically. Never underestimate the uh, selfishness of other people. Yeah, that's uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, um, I suppose he thought maybe I was being selfish, but um, I'd put a lot of planning into this. What sets of work have you been most proud of? And what set of work do you think has caused the biggest change? The set of work I'm most proud of is, I will refer back to what I was talking about before, was The Last Dancing Bears of India, only because that was one of the few stories that I've ever covered where there was a happy ending, because I basically was witness to the last bears that were so cruelly treated in India being brought in and surrendered to a, a sanctuary where they could live the rest of their life in relative happiness it was a project that was over and done with within seven years from the start to the finish because they recognized the human side of the story the humans dancing and being cruel to the bears were as much a victim of the process as the bears themselves and once they realized that and tackled it they just gave up the bears because they weren't they weren't being cruel to the bears because they didn't like bears. The bears were a, a, a fundamental part of their way that they paid for their lives. So once they recognised that they didn't have to dance bears to 
to bring up children. They uh, they changed their ways and, and the whole thing was, was done and dusted there and then. So I think that's the one bit of work that I'm most proud of. And the second part of your question was which bit has made the most impact probably the palm oil story i covered about uh, i actually went to cover a story on orangutans and ended up documenting the uh, the coal face of creating a palm oil plantation which was a pretty horrible place to to be it looked like i remember seeing world war one pictures of places like passchendaele which were just horrible churned muddy fields uh well it was a bit like that and it just gave me the creeps and made me question humanity's role on this planet when have you been stood there in the rain, in the mud, and thought, what am I doing? Or in fact, have you ever stood there and thought, what am I doing? No, I've never I've never stood there. I mean, I've stood in a lot of rain and I've stood in a lot of mud. I've laid in a lot of mud as well. But I've never stood there and thought, what am I doing? This is just pointless. Because it doesn't matter how uncomfortable I am in in that particular moment, I always think that actually what I'm doing, in a small way, perhaps, but it's always important. It's not I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to mess the world up. I'm not trying to harm anyone. All I'm trying to do is to do a little bit of good. With photographs, it's probably easier in in this next question that I'm going to ask you. But how do we avoid not preaching? Because I know that when you preach to people, you will immediately switch them off from the cause you're trying to promote. With photographs, it's probably quite factual. This is the photograph. This is the reality. When sort of pulling it together into maybe an article, into a video, how, how do we avoid preaching? and turning people off completely? Well, the easiest way is, is to show people what's actually happening. Then it's it's up to them to make their mind up of, to whether they're, they're outraged, whether they're comfortable, whether they're uncomfortable, whether, whether they want to continue doing what they do or whether they want to change. It's not up to the photographer to, to make that decision. It's up to the, the person viewing the image. What I see in a picture and what I think the story is telling will always be different to what the viewer thinks. I can I can try and steer with the images, but someone else, the the viewer, will will ultimately make their mind up as to whether the picture's horrifying enough to for them to change their ways or not. How do you make a decision about the artistic aspect of an image? How do you decide whether it's better to portray it black and white? How do you decide about editing it? Or do you say no? This is what it is. I'm not editing it. I'm not changing it. What you see is what you got. I don't tend to do an awful lot of editing anyway. I don't take anything out of an image i don't put stuff back into an image i will do the the normal tweaks that you would in a in a darkroom so i i would use lightroom or photoshop just as as darkroom tools rather than tools to to completely change an image mainly because i'm not really fussed about creating digital art i i much more prefer to, to create photographic art so i i don't tend to uh, to change an awful lot it's it's more just tweaking highlights and shadows and and that sort of thing to uh, to make the the picture more visually interesting rather than visually stimulating before we finish is there any sort of tips ideas things you would want to tell people most people when they see what i do automatically think that the only thing that you can take pictures of when you're doing this kind of work is is the environment so wildlife and animals and, and things like that and it's not True. I I do. I try and do at least one big personal project each year. I haven't for the last year because I've been uh, working on renovating a cottage. But uh, I tend to try and find a, a a decent local story to me and try and cover that. And a lot of them in this country anyway are human interest stories. 
So it doesn't. You don't have to just pick animal or environment stories. It, there's there's quite a lot of human interest stories. And if anyone's looking for inspiration, I would look at the likes of the Magnum photographers because their storytelling is second to none. And look at just how they craft their images rather than just take snaps. Is actually sit there and wait and work out what you want to actually tell in a in a photograph and and approach photography from that angle rather than taking a thousand pictures and choosing the best one. So I think that draws our chat to a a sort of natural end, Gavin, and it's been really informative and really enjoyable to talk to you. And it's, it's certainly an aspect of photography. I I really don't have that much experience in. So I want to thank you. And I want to ask for those listeners who are interested, where can they find more of your work? Uh, Well, they can find my work on my website, which is, www.gavinparsons.co.uk or they can find me on Instagram at gparsonsphoto they can also find me I've just started doing a few YouTube videos just to to join the the bandwagon Uh, and you can find me at uh, do a search for Gavin Parsons you'll find me on YouTube and don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 160 SPP and thank you for listening